Heavenly Father, thank you, Father, that you brought us to the end of this wonderfully small but powerfully packed letter. Thank you, Father, for the chance to finish it and hopefully, Father, to do so as we started it, resting in your wisdom and by the counsel of your spirit. I pray, Father, that with all that Judas told us so far, we have so much yet to to learn about false teachers and even in what we'll learn tonight, we won't learn everything. But I pray it's been enough, Father, that through your word we'll be prepared to face the men who might come to deceive, that we might be able to strengthen those who are caught in their grasp and help others to know the difference, Father. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In our previous lessons in Jude, he has left us in no doubt whatsoever that false teachers are evil and they're men who are due judgment. And back in verse 4, Jude said these men have been marked out beforehand for judgment because of their licentiousness, because of their unbelief, because they see religion as a means of financial gain, because they use religious service as a means to an end. All of those things we've studied, all of those things confirm for us who these men are. Now we're going to finish the letter. Where does Jude go in finishing this letter? Well, he finishes his letter by emphasizing the reality of their judgment. We have nothing in common with these men. We need to understand that and we need to act accordingly. They have different futures than us. And therefore, we need to see them for who they are, condemned men and women. And so that's the first part. Later in this letter today, as we finish, Jude is going to turn to the audience. He's going to say what we can do in preparation for their onslaught so that we're prepared to handle it and handle it properly. So today's a very practical day in terms of what the letters are addressing. So in making the first point about the fact that their future and our future are not the same future. Now Jude chooses to quote from another apocryphal book, a book called the book of Enoch. And that's where we pick up in Jude verses 14 and 15. It was also about these men that Enoch, the seventh generation from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds, which they have done in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. The book of Enoch is not a work of scripture. It's not a book written with inspired insight. It is a book that ancient Israel knew and read. Though it bears his name, the book wasn't written by him. It was written many millennia later. And that's why we say it's Jewish apocryphal literature, which is a form of fictional literature common to Jewish society. We we learned this earlier when we looked at the earlier reference in Jude's letter to the Assumption of Moses, which is another apocryphal reference. It's a popular thing for Jewish society to read a form of literature that is written to mimic the sound and the feeling of Scripture. They liked it because of its mystique. They liked it because it seemed to be wisdom from above. I mean, it was not Scripture. It wasn't meant to be, but they liked it because it felt like it. You could think of it as an ancient form of pulp fiction or something. It's, it's the thing you bought on the way out of the Jewish grocery store. Oh, look, the Book of Enoch. That'll be fun tonight. So as with the case of the Assumption of Moses, there are some details in this book which are accurate. But as I said last time, I'll say again, that doesn't make the whole book accurate. It doesn't make the book useful as a whole. The very fact that something in it might have been truthful is just happenstance. But because that's so, Jude chooses to incorporate that fact now into his letter. And in so doing, he makes that one fact scripture. What is that detail? Well, the detail here concerns something that Enoch said prophetically that was captured in this ancient Jewish book. 
Before we look at what he actually said, we might ask the question, how would anyone in Jude's day know what he said approximately 3,000 years earlier to the day that Jude wrote his letter? Enoch himself lived 700 years prior to the flood of Noah. So how did anything he say be recorded and kept and preserved and then made known to a man who came 3,000 years later? Well, first, the Lord has the power to preserve his word. And if God intended that Enoch's prophecy was to become part of Scripture, as it did in Jude's letter, then that means his prophecy was the word of God. Even when it was spoken, even before it became part of Scripture, it was to be, therefore it was, the word of God. And Christ himself said that the heavens and earth will pass away, but God's word will never pass away. So God has the power to preserve his word from the moment it becomes known until and after all creation has passed away. So that's the first and obvious answer. But the second answer, the more practical one, if you will, comes from an ancient Jewish historian by the name of Josephus, who many of you have heard. He reports a tantalizing detail about ancient times concerning how biblical authors like Jude came to know about historical events that took place prior to and immediately after the flood. For example, how did Moses know to write about all the detail leading up to the flood? Well, Josephus reports that Enoch's son, Methuselah, was himself an ancient historian. And during his exceptionally long lifespan, which we all know is the longest recorded in Scripture, Methuselah wrote the history of the world since Adam. And he did so on two large stone obelisks, freestanding structures, which he carved on. Those obelisks, according to Josephus, stood on the earth somewhere in Arabia during the years leading up to the flood. You may remember that Methuselah is named Methuselah because his name in Hebrew means when he dies, it shall come, referring to the flood. And sure enough, he died in the year of the flood. He didn't die in the flood. He died before it. So he lived long enough to record all the events of Genesis chapters one through six on those obelisks. The flood arrives in about the year 2350 B.C., And after the waters recede, Methuselah's historical markers emerged from the ark and Noah and his descendants could read the history of the world prior to the flood preserved on those obelisks. In fact, Josephus writes that those obelisks remained standing and readable until Moses' day. Now, if that's true, that would explain how Moses could have written what he wrote concerning Genesis while he was in the desert wandering near that area. Perhaps the Lord led him to the obelisks, which were written in Hebrew, which was the original language of men where Moses would then have learned the story that he was told to preserve in the Torah for you and I today. And so the words of Enoch would have been preserved in that same fashion, we presume, and they were then handed down. And at some point, somebody craftily included some of those words in a non-scriptural writing, but nonetheless, they were included in the canon through Jude's letter. So the first answer was God can preserve his word. The second answer is he may have done it, through this method of using an ancient historian, Methuselah, to write and preserve it through the flood. Even though I can't prove to you that that actually happened beyond what Josephus wrote, it certainly fits God's pattern, doesn't it? That he would know the flood's coming, that he'd prepare someone to write the words, that he would make sure that his word would be preserved and do so in a manner that could survive a flood. And Josephus isn't necessarily accurate in everything he says, but he's generally considered to be accurate source of Jewish history. Take that for what it may be worth. Moving on, Jude says, Enoch was the seventh man in the sea line after Adam. 
If you don't know much about Enoch, he's mentioned in Genesis 5. As I mentioned earlier, he's the father of Methuselah. Jude mentions his place seventh in the line, and seven is a significant number in Scripture. We know that. It's a number that means completeness or the fullness of something. Enoch was the seventh in the seed line coming from Adam. The seed line is the line in Scripture that God said would produce the Messiah one day. The seed being that seed he spoke first to woman about, that through your seed he would bring someone to crush the head of Satan. Later to Abraham, he talks about Abraham's seed, and through that seed all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And Paul says that seed was Christ. Well, Abraham is in the seed line, as was Isaac and Jacob. But going backward, the seed line traces its way back through Noah, back to Methuselah, and then from Methuselah back to Enoch. So Enoch is the seventh in the line of this promise. Enoch is contrasted in Genesis with another man, another character called Lamech. In Genesis, the line of Cain is the family of unbelief and rebellion. The very first two offspring of woman and Adam are people who have become the poster children for all humanity. Abel is the poster child for all believers. Cain is the poster child for all unbelievers. Believers are persecuted and are killed by the unbelievers. That picture is intentionally created in that moment through these two. And all that follows in Scripture is mirrored on those two. After Abel dies and Seth starts the seed line, eventually you reach Enoch. But going down Cain's line, you end up with the seventh in Cain's line being a man named Lamech. You hear about him in chapters 4 and 5. So we have Enoch on the good side, if you will, Lamech on the bad side, and both of them at the seventh in their respective lines, that number meaning the fullness of, the completion of, they both become poster children for their respective lines. In chapter 4, we read this about the seventh in the line of Canaan. 4.23, Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, listen to my voice, you wives of Lamech. Give heed to my speech, for I have killed a man for wounding me and a boy for striking me. If Cain is avenged sevenfold, then Lamech, Seventy-sevenfold. Lamech, as I said, is the seventh in the line from Cain. He is a man who demonstrates great sinfulness, great rebellion. And in fact, he prides himself, as you can tell, on being able to avenge his own insults. Seventy-sevenfold. That is, tremendously more ruthlessly than Cain defended himself against his brother. Now, if you remember, after Cain kills Abel, he tries to hide the murder. When Lamech commits murder, he brags about it. While Cain sought God's approval in some sense, Lamech makes no attempt to do so. Lamech represents the fullness of sin, the completion of sin, a man who is showing the full measure of what sin does in the line of Cain, a man now who is extremely sinful and 100% without concern for it, no repentant heart, hardened heart. And then we turn the tables and we look at Enoch who is the seventh in the line from Adam in the seed promise. In Genesis 5.22, we read this. Then Enoch walked with God 300 years after he became the father of Methuselah, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. So that's all we hear about Enoch. He's a man who, quote, walked with God. It's a brief statement. But yet, it's all we need to hear when contrasted with the seventh in the line from Cain. Enoch was walking with God in faith, in obedience, in contrast to where the seventh of Cain had led, to a man who was in full rebellion to God. 
Cain's descendants had moved as far from God as possible, Enoch was right there next to him. You also notice Enoch's end. It's very mysterious. One moment he's walking with God, and the next moment he is not. He's not there. And it says, God took him. Now, Genesis is very careful. The book of Genesis, Moses, I guess you would say, is very careful to describe the birth and the death of every important person in the seed line. Now, if you're not in the seed line, you don't get that treatment necessarily. But the seed line all the way through the book is carefully traced to make the point of here's how God is working out his promise. Here we learn, though, that Enoch does not die. He's never given a death date. He's never said to have passed away like the other uh, men in the line are said to do. He's simply said to be taken. So why does God take Enoch off the earth without requiring him to die first? Some have tried to explain this as, well, he was really that good. No one's really that good. No one's good enough to deserve that, right? No one is. That's not even an answer that makes sense. He walked with God. That's great. But he's not inherently good enough to justify God doing something unique and special. God's doing something to make a point. The answer relates to the flood of Noah and to the point Jude is making now in his letter. Enoch's removal from the earth is a picture of the future removal of God's people from earth prior to a future judgment. That future removal is our resurrection or our rapture of the church, which is yet to happen. That resurrection will happen seven years, more or less, prior to another coming judgment on earth. The Lord will remove the righteous, those who are righteous by faith, before he brings his judgment on earth. Enoch is a picture of God's plan to separate the righteous before judgment falls on the unrighteous at the end of the age. And we know from other scripture that the flood of Noah is a picture of the coming judgment that will come upon the earth at the end of tribulation. So in Enoch's case, he's not removed seven years prior to the judgment. He's removed 700 years prior to the judgment, while Cain's line is left to experience the judgment waters that come after that. So when Jude says Enoch was the seventh in the line of Adam, He's not saying that in some casual sense, like, oh, you know, Enoch, that guy back in the time, the seventh one from Adam. No, he's saying it to remind us of the significance of how he left the earth. He was the seventh, the representative man of the completion of God's righteous work, of the sanctifying work of God, that the church being sanctified, washed by the water of the word, made a spotless bride, is then taken to meet her groom. So the seventh in Enoch represents that. And his taking in that unique way is to illustrate to us what God's prepared to do to his people in the day before judgment comes again. Jude is reminding his readers that God's people are to be separated. He says that the Lord's return is accompanied by his holy ones. All right. Well, did you notice that Enoch talked about, first of all, a return of the Lord? If he says he will come with all his holy ones with him to execute judgment, the first coming of Christ didn't come that way. So we know he's talking about the second coming, which means he understood the second coming of Christ was the moment he came for judgment. And then the fact that he says he returns with thousands of his holy ones, well, those holy ones are you and me. We are the ones returning with Christ, which would mean we have to be removed from the earth prior to his return, or we couldn't be with him to accompany him on the return. So once again, this is an oblique reference to the rapture of the church prior to Christ's return in bringing judgment upon the earth. Let's move forward and make the application. Believers in the church have nothing in common with false teachers. And he reminds us that the church is like Enoch, a man who testified by his life and his words that God intends to separate the righteous from the unrighteous prior to judgment. And then, moreover, the righteous will have a role with Christ in executing judgment upon evil men, including false teachers. 
So in verse 15, he says this coming judgment will fall upon these men like these false teachers. That they will be condemned both by their ungodly things they do and the ungodly things they say. He's reminding the church that Enoch himself said there would be a day when the Lord would return to judge the ungodly and bring the godly with him as a function of that judgment. Here you are now on earth with the ungodly false teachers amongst you. We need to see them the way God does. Ones we will judge upon a return to the earth. Separate yourselves from them. They are not like you. They have no common future. They have no common inheritance. There should be a distinction in your mind that is so stark that you never look upon them as somebody who's just wavering in their commitment to Christ. These are people who have no relationship with you and I in nature, in faith, in understanding of Scripture. Knowing this, Jude expects us now to make what I think is an obvious conclusion. If these men are going to receive punishment for what they do and what they say, then we need to see them the way God sees them. Their words will cease to be compelling. Their lies will no longer deceive us and have the power to do so if we look upon them as condemned men. Next time you happen to catch one of those prosperity preachers speaking their lies on TV, I want you to take a moment. I want you to look upon them with an understanding of what Jude just said. See them as condemned men. Understand they are digging their own graves with their lies and with their sinful living. Know that you will accompany Christ upon a second coming and execute judgment upon them or whoever follows from them. And in that moment, they will have lost all their power to deceive you. You'll have a kind of pity on them that recognizes they are not your superior at any level. You are theirs. That's what he's asking for the church to do. Look on them as very small to be pitied. And he mentions that they are condemned, as I said, by what they do as much as by what they say. So Jude now lists some of the patterns of speech that condemn them. Verse 16. They are grumblers, finding fault, following after their own lusts. They speak arrogantly, flattering people for the sake of gaining an advantage. In the first part of that verse, you have the 10th triad. First, Jude calls these men grumblers or murmurers would be another word in This is a uniquely Jewish insult. We wouldn't take much of that if somebody called us a grumbler or a murmurer. The Pharisees, you may remember, were said to be grumblers in the presence of Jesus' teaching. The Israelites were called murmurers in the desert wanderings. In both cases, those actions are intended to illustrate a lack of faith in God's word. That's what the meaning of that is in a Jewish context. As in the case of the Pharisees, for example, these men claim to be teachers of the word, and yet they they themselves were grumbling against the true teacher, Christ. So to grumble is a way of showing your discontent below your breath. It reflects a lack of faith. Secondly, they find fault or they are complainers. That's another way to translate it. They are men who complain of their situation or of their fate. You know, if complaining were enough to gain us the fires of hell, who could escape? So complaining is not the problem. The issue here is not in a general sense. It's complaining about not being free enough to follow their lusts, not being unrestrained, not being allowed to do what they want to do. So they find fault. They find fault with teachers, with leaders, anyone who challenges their teaching and their behavior. They're like children complaining that the rules are rules that they don't like and don't want to have to follow. Thirdly, they are men who speak arrogantly. The word in Greek for arrogant literally means of excessive weight or size. So it's euphemistic in this case. They're speaking in excessive ways. And they do so, Jude says, to flatter people in the church for the sake of gaining advantage. So there are two kinds of lies we can tell about people. 
We can use one kind that slanders or another kind that flatters. One is trying to discredit. The other is trying to manipulate. But both are equally sinful. They're using the manipulative kind. And now, at this point in the letter, Jude has described these men in multiple levels of detail. We've had, over the last several weeks, we've had a chance to look at their presence in the church, the nature of these men, their methods, their motivations, now their fate. The church has no longer got an excuse for not defending themselves in the face of these men, not recognizing their influence, not understanding the danger. Now the question is, do you have the courage to stand up to people who fit the pattern? Some will, some will waver, and then some will follow them. And we see that in the church today, I think, if you look around, you're going to find some Christians wise enough to recognize false teachers on TV or in local churches. And then you're going to see others who are sort of taken in by their smooth words and repeat their teaching to others. So because of all of those patterns in the church, Jude now gives advice, a final appeal to the church on how we are to deal with the teachers when they arrive and they start to make a difference in the body, how they start to influence people. How do we help all three of these groups? Now, you see that in verses 17 through 19. He says, but you, beloved, ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostle of our Lord Jesus Christ, that they were saying to you, in the last time there will be mockers following after their own ungodly lusts. These are the ones who cause divisions, worldly-minded, devoid of the Spirit. Rather than listen to the grumbling and to the complaining and the arrogant speech of the false teachers, Jude says, instead of listening to them, listen to the apostles and the words that they gave you in the past. And he quotes from Peter again in verse 18. And this is what he quotes from 2 Peter 3, 3. Peter says, know this, first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts. So it's a near perfect quote. Both Jude and Peter speak of mockers in the last time. And that term last time refers to the last period of our age. And therefore, Peter was not speaking of the false teachers in his own day, including those that Jude is writing about. They're not talking about those men right now. They're talking about future false teachers who come mocking a certain thing. But Jude is making an application from that. And Jude's point is that false teachers always come in a similar way. And therefore, they have a similar effect on the body. They use false words to cast doubt and create division within the church body. In a future day, Peter says false teachers will come mocking. And if you read Peter's letter in more detail, you find out the mocking is with respect to the prospect of Christ's return. You can imagine that that kind of mocking, that had not yet begun in Jude's day because Christ's first coming was still a fresh memory and people were still expecting his return to be right around the corner. So that's not going to be the kind of mocking you'd see in the church at this early stage of history. But as time stretches from decades to centuries to millennia, the opportunity to cast out grows. And in a future day, Peter said, men are going to begin to cast out on Christ's return. Well, that future day has arrived for us. We are in that time Peter talked about. Why do false teachers mock the idea of Christ's second coming? Well, primarily because it gives them an excuse to follow after their lusts. Because if it's true that Jesus isn't coming back, then perhaps judgment isn't going to come at all. And if judgment is in doubt, then those who want freedom to sin can do so with impunity. They have no fear they're ever going to be called into account for their sin because if Christ isn't coming back, who's going to judge them? The concept of judgment is pushed so far off into obscurity that it doesn't resonate with them. It doesn't have any bearing on their behavior. Just like a kid who thinks their parents are never going to come home. There's no incentive to do the right thing. 
So Jude uses Peter's statement as evidence that whenever such men arrive, they create divisions by what they say. They drive a wedge into the body of Christ. They are worldly minded men. They only have a focus on the here and now. They are men who cannot consider heavenly things because, as Jude says, they are devoid of the spirit. So if we had any doubt, they're unbelievers. Now we know for sure they don't have the spirit. They are unbelievers. If we are hearing them grumble and complain and drive a wedge in the church and suggest that things we've heard aren't true and that the rules we've been told to live under aren't right and to suggest, as Peter says, that Christ isn't even coming back anyway, that whole idea is a lie to begin with. The church is about the social gospel or the church is about helping and feeding people. It's not about these other matters. Those are the ancient concerns. We have modern concerns. Then to that, he says the defense is to remember what the apostles said. So if they preach lies, we need to know the truth. If they divide the body, we need to remain united in the faith. If they sow discontent, we need to focus on the goodness of God. If they are worldly minded, we need to keep our minds on eternity and the rewards of heaven. That's what Jude writes in the next two verses, verses 20 and 21. He says, but you, beloved, building yourselves up, On your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. Here's Jude's response to the problem of false teachers. And it's actually twofold, beginning with a focus on ourselves. So he says, first, each believer has a personal responsibility to keep ourselves spiritually strong. Notice he doesn't tell us that our first defense is to attack these guys. We don't need websites exposing false teachers. That's not necessarily wrong, but that's not the way we're going to defeat the problem. We aren't commanded to engage with these men. In fact, we're commanded to separate. They are unbelievers. Therefore, they have nothing in common with us as believers. We are to leave room for the vengeance of God, as Paul says in Romans. We are to simply get out of the way of the lightning bolt. Just distance ourselves from them and their influence. It's foolish, in fact, to assume we can fight these men in our own power. The enemy is far stronger than we are in our own power. Only by putting on the full armor of God do we have any chance to withstand them. You have to fight in God's power, and that begins with readying yourself with what God's made available. So he says our first line of defense against these enemies is to build yourself up. Notice what he says. Build yourself up on your most holy faith. He says build up on. You might have thought that's a typo. It should have been build yourself up in your faith as opposed to on your faith. What he is saying in a sense is studying up on your faith. Study God's word and the doctrines and the theology of the faith so you are learning about it. To become a serious student of the word is the first and most important defense to false teaching. Spiritually, it strengthens us to resist the power of the enemy to draw us away from the truth. And then, as we said, if false teachers work through lies, we need to know the truth. So the first defense is to build yourself up on, or another way to say it is to study up on, your faith. You probably heard it said that we don't teach tellers to identify counterfeits by studying counterfeits, right? So they learn to identify counterfeits by studying the real thing. And so you have to become a student of the real thing, of the truth, in order to filter out the lies when they show up. And if the enemy is the father of lies, how well do you think we have to know the word of God in order to understand a difference between his lie and truth? He's really good at lying. So we have to know the truth really well. So that's the first thing. Secondly, Jude uses his 12th triad to remind us of the importance of relying on all three persons of the Godhead. He says, first, continue praying in the spirit, which is to say, continue aligned with God's heart. When false teachers make a claim about God, about what he wants, how he thinks, what he expects, 
We need the counsel of the spirit so that we can test those statements. And if you are accustomed to hearing from the spirit through his word, through prayer, then when these men stand up and say some of these outrageous things, it doesn't ring true right from the start. It sets off warning bells in your head, doesn't it? That's what Jude is asking us to be prepared with. A conscious awareness of truth buttressed by a familiarity with the voice of the spirit so that, as Jesus says in John 6, the sheep know the voice of their shepherd and they follow the voice of the shepherd. They don't know a stranger's voice. When we know the master's voice, we can hear the difference when some other person shows up and claims to speak for God. I also compare it to a young child who expects to hear the voice of their parent in their home. But if they heard the voice of a stranger, they would know instantly that's not my parent. And they would immediately feel wary and concerned instinctively. This is something we will only have if we are practiced at listening to the spirit's voice. And then he says, secondly, keep yourself in the love of God. Now he's referring to the father. So he starts with the spirit. Then he moves to the father. The Father's love for us should be reflected in our attitude concerning all things. But when you consider the attitudes, the thoughts, and the actions of these false teachers, they do not line up with the love of God. They are inherently unloving when you break them down. When you consider what they're saying about what we should want and about how God treats us, they are showing a lack of love toward God in the way they treat him. And we've seen earlier Jude says that they revile angelic majesties. Their attitude toward God is not loving. They're selfish, arrogant, greedy. We've already heard those things said in this letter. And then secondly, they're not loving toward their neighbor in that they promote jealousy. They promote discontent. They promote division. No one who is unloving to God and unloving to his neighbor can speak to us on behalf of God. They're self-evidently disqualified. So if we use the test of love for anything we are hearing taught to us, you're going to find that to be an amazingly accurate way to filter falsehood from truth. Listen for the heart of the speaker. Are they speaking in love or are they speaking in attitudes of jealousy and greed, etc.? Truth will promote love for God and, and for neighbor, but the enemy will always do the opposite. Finally, we wait, he says, for the mercy of Christ at his return. So there's the third person of the Godhead, Christ. Jude is calling for Christians to keep your gaze squarely on eternity. Keep thinking about the coming of Christ for the church. Keep considering daily the judgment seat of Christ and how that judgment will go for you on that day. Let that eternal mindset guard your hearts against false teaching, because what the teachers attempt to do is lower your thoughts to earthly concerns and fleshly concerns. And if your heart and your head are up here, these messages won't appeal. Next, Jude says the church is to fight against the divisiveness of false teachers by strengthening each other. So the defense we said was twofold. The first and always the first line is yourself. And then secondly, from that strength, you now go out and help others in the body of Christ. So the second line of defense is how we rally together instead of being divided. Verses 22 and 23, he says, and have mercy on some who are doubting, save others, snatching them out of the fire. And on some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. This is the 13th triad. And in it, we find his counsel for how to strengthen others around us. First, he says some of us are more immature in our faith, some of our brothers and sisters. And that will lead them to have some doubts concerning what is true. They'll hear the false teachers. They'll wonder. Maybe there's some truth there. They'll question what they've been taught and what these men are now teaching. That's natural when you're immature, since they don't have the backing of Scripture necessarily or the life experience of a Christian to, to understand these things. They haven't heard the voice of the Spirit enough to filter properly. So when they're immature, you'd expect some of this. They're also, therefore, the most vulnerable. 
To that group, Jude says, we, the ones who know better, the ones who are mature, need to have patience and show mercy. The word for mercy there can also be translated pity. So we are to look at them with understanding and maybe with a degree of pity so that we can respond to them in kindness, not in judgment, not in anger, not in threats, but like you would to a child who just doesn't understand something properly. So we do not further the enemy's goals in our approach, which means we don't want to further the division. We want to unite, heal that divide by showing mercy. In this case, specifically, mercy would mean things like understanding their doubting, but continuing to teach the truth, trying to expose the lies gently, allowing them time to process that and to mature through that, not to make them feel stupid or not to make them feel foolish unnecessarily because that can drive them into the arms of the false teacher, right? We're looking to be patient and move them into the right direction. That's step one. That's for the group that hasn't run off after the false teacher, but they're wavering. They're questioning whether what they've heard could be true. Now, there's a second group. For some believers, the deception has been too strong to resist and they have fallen to a degree to a false teacher's teaching. They are believers who need to be saved from the influence of that believer. That's why he says, save some. Not in the soteriological sense, that is, of salvation, but save them in the sense of from the influence of these men. Imagine a person, for example, who has fallen overboard into the ocean and they need rescue. And so the goal we have for that person is to throw a life preserver and pull them back in. Now, that can be difficult because they may not be looking for a life preserver in the case of these Christians who have wandered off. And Jude makes no attempt to explain how we might do this. He just says, do it. And therefore, we can imagine the specific steps will vary by the circumstances. But the basic point is to act in the best interest of that individual, endeavoring to pull them away from the false teacher's influence, maybe an intervention, maybe a weekend retreat, maybe a heart to heart conversation. Maybe asking them to join a better Bible study where you know they're going to hear the right thing and you just hope over time that's going to pull them back to where they need to be. God can do that work. Maybe you offer them a CD with recordings from this Jude teaching, for example. Or point them to the website. But do whatever you can to save them from the penalty that they will suffer for experiencing a shipwrecked faith. And that should be your motivation. When it feels too tough or too hard or too time consuming and you've got better things to worry about or you say to yourself, you know what, they deserve it. Which sometimes, sometimes we get that judgmental attitude kind of creeping in, right? And we decide it's not worth the effort and maybe they deserve it anyway. I want you to consider the eternal judgment that comes on someone with shipwrecked faith. Not eternal hell, that's not what we're talking about. They're believers. But the shipwrecked faith that Scripture talks about. Rewards lost. A chance to please God thrown away and then an eternity to reflect on that. Why let anyone suffer through that if we can have an influence to save them? But then thirdly, finally, you have this group who has listened to the false teaching for so long and liked it so much that they are now disciples of it and repeat it to others. These believers have to be handled carefully, Jude says. This third group, keep in mind, are not the false teachers themselves because the false teachers are unbelievers. This is a group of believers who has been taken in and they've taken the message to heart and now they are repeating what they've been taught. So the fundamental distinction between this group, which Jude says we have an obligation to help at some level, versus the false teachers themselves is that these men are unbelievers while this group we're working with are believers. That makes all the difference in the world. So you're going to run into these folks all the time, especially in our age today. 
One of these Christians will walk up to you and they'll repeat some of the mantra they've been taught. Name it, claim it, rebuke the devil, sow your seed, etc. When you start to hear these phrases coming out of their mouth, they don't even really know what they're saying. Because they're nonsense to begin with. They just know someone who they thought was helpful has taught them these things have power, power they don't really understand. And so they're trying to be helpful to you by repeating the catchphrase. But that's also helpful in a different sense. It's helpful for us because it lets us recognize a believer who's been saturated in false teaching and has come to believe it. More concerning, though, they may have started to follow some of the other bad examples of these false teachers. They may be following after the lust of the flesh in the way that these false teachers, Jude says, often do. And particularly in areas like sexual or financial lust. I mean, if these men are making their money by teaching you can become rich, it is fuel on the fleshly fire of greed. It stands to reason these people may have started to walk a very lustful life in some areas as a result of falling for this teaching. So that's why Jude says this person deserves our mercy, but mixed with fear on our part, because that fear refers to maintaining some distance from them and their influence from these Christians, especially if they begun to mimic the fleshly sins of their teachers. They are polluted by the flesh, Jude says, even their garments as a way of saying, don't even get near them in that respect. Don't let the fact that they're Christians and you're concerned for them cause you to be naive about the threat they pose to the body of Christ. We do our best to pull them out, but we need a sobering view, a sobering expectation about the possibilities for success and the dangers that come with the mission. You probably have very little success in many cases, and you need to protect yourself and the rest of the body of Christ from their influence. So even as you help them, I I like to consider this uh, like medical treatment. You know, there can be a disease so dangerous that you have to quarantine the patient even as you're trying to heal them. And it may impede the progress of the treatment, but it's the safest course because otherwise too many other people are at risk. So even as we try to help the individual, our first priority is the flock. So this is a class of people or a class of Christians who may be on the brink of being too far gone. And we have a concern. We want to show some mercy, but we aren't going to turn the world upside down for them because that could do more harm to the group. Some people are too far gone. So Jude says the church has to fight against false teachers in the church in three ways. Strengthen ourselves daily in the disciplines of the faith, relying on God's power. Secondly, work to help our brothers and sisters resist the enemy's schemes. And then lastly, protect the flock by isolating those who have fallen for the lies. And limit the damage. And then as we come near the end of the letter, Jude ends with a vote of confidence in the church's ability to do these things. He says in verses 24 and 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy to the only God, our savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. First, Jude gives the church confidence. He says, you can resist false teachers. And he says, you'll have the power to resist by standing in the power of God. God has the power, he says, to keep, or another word in Greek could mean guard, to guard us from stumbling. Now, his point isn't that God promises to keep you from making mistakes or that God promises to keep you from falling to false teachers. If that were true, then he wouldn't have needed to write the letter. Right. It's not that we know that many Christians do stumble and some will become prey for false teachers. What he's referring to is God's ultimate power and promise to redeem us and sanctify us and glorify us in the kingdom. 
In other words, whatever else may happen to us on this earth, one day we will stand, he says, in the presence of the Lord, blameless. Blameless. Even that Christian who falls for the false teacher and runs off headlong into sin will one day stand blameless before Christ. Our blamelessness is not a product of our own power or of our own will or of our own work, which we all should know. It comes strictly as a matter of grace through faith. But because of his grace, we get the opportunity to stand blameless and there will be great joy over that change. That's the true hope of the Christian faith. So he says, I have confidence in you because I know we'll all stand blameless one day. Secondly, we owe this all, he says, to him, our only God and Savior, and through the God-man Jesus Christ. Therefore, to him, he says, rightly deserves to be all the glory, the majesty, the dominion, and the authority. And he's specifically here contending with some of the false teaching. This may just sound like a, a, just a runoff list of, of spiritual words at the end of the letter, and like a benediction, of course, but it's got specific meaning concerning the teachings that they're hearing. He states that, for example, there's only one God and Savior. He states that the Savior is Jesus Christ, who himself is also the Lord. And if you remember, the false teachers were denying the master who bought them, remember, earlier in the letter? They're denying Christ as master, and he says, no, Jesus Christ is the Lord himself. So he's contending with that. Furthermore, he says, this Lord is the holder of all glory. And the mention of glory here refers to the Shekinah glory. Again, a Jewish thought. The glory of God demonstrated in the Old Testament. That mention of glory is there to remind Jude's Jewish readers that Jesus was the fulfillment of the messianic promises of the Old Testament. The Shekinah glory of God manifested in man, in Christ. So that Jesus is the man, the physical presence of God on earth in contrast to what the Gnostics taught. Next, Jude says he has all majesty, and this is just like Matthew's gospel where Jude is emphasizing Jesus as king of the Jews. Majesty above all. Not merely a prophet, but also king. Then he says he has dominion over all. That means he will return and rule the earth. That's a direct denial to the mockers who say there will be no second coming. No, he has dominion over all. He will be here to reign. Finally, it says he has all authority. There is no other source of power or authority in all the creation other than Christ. Even the enemy and the false teachers who operated do so under the authority of Christ. So, to end the book, Jude can't resist adding a 14th triad. He says, our God has existed before all time. He is in the present time and he will be forever in the future. And with that, he adds an amen and so do we.